Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We're in a series on the Gospel of John titled Witness to the Light. And following the sermon, you'll hear the weekly Q&A. John chapter 3 is where we left off last week, and so it is where we begin again this evening. Um, as you're turning there uh, or, or pressing there, uh, I want to give you a, another little bit of a, a, a zoom out uh, to remind us what we're doing here. And, and I'm going to say this until you're tired of it, because I don't want us to miss kind of the forest for the trees, right? So um, John has... Uh, thus far in three short chapters, introduced us to who Jesus is in chapter one, this big, what they call the Christology, the high Christology of John, this big vision of Jesus as creator and sustainer God, and then immediately pivoted into these stories. So we saw John the Baptist, and then uh, the story of Jesus at the wedding in Cana, and then transitioning very quickly to Jesus in the temple. So what we've talked about for these last couple of weeks is that by using those two stories, the wedding at Cana and Jesus in the temple, John gives us a picture of Jesus, um, not as, I, 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 I wanna be careful the way I've said this, that there is in the picture uh, that we see at the wedding in Cana, this, this picture of a, an amazing, abundant, extravagant, gratuitous even, grace of Jesus providing wine for this wedding uh, that ran out of wine, and that is a cry and shame. Jesus not only provided wine for the wedding when they ran out, but actually gave them way more than they would ever need, 120 gallons of really good wine. So we have this like extravagance of God's provision and blessing and grace in Cana, and then immediately the story pivots to Jesus in Jerusalem going into the temple, seeing this marketplace happening where there's money changers making a bunch of noise and there's animals being sold in the place that the Gentiles were meant to worship. And so Jesus gathers up uh, a bunch of reeds or cords, makes a whip out of them, starts whipping fools, driving people and animals out of the temple. I'm just gonna say whipping fools as many times as I possibly can until I start to get some pushback on that. Um, but this, this kind of two-sided vision of Jesus that we see in Cana and then in the temple is meant to be a framework through which we might see the rest of Jesus' interactions, right? So we, we've been talking about this. So then the story pivots to these two interactions. The first is the one we've been looking at, Jesus with Nicodemus, and then in, in John chapter four, Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. Two very famous stories that John has put next to each other for us to see how Jesus embodies this, this tension of grace and truth um, in real life. And so the first story of Nicodemus, we have this man who is, uh, first of all, a man. Second of all, a very powerful man, a Jewish man at the center of the religious orthodoxy. He is a Pharisee, which means he takes his faith really seriously. Even if misguided, the Pharisees were really serious about the law. They looked at the 613 laws in the Old Testament and thought, not enough. We need twice that many, right? So literally added hundreds and hundreds of laws to the Old Testament to bring specificity to the way in which they were supposed to follow Jesus. That's who this guy is. In addition to that, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which means he has religious power. He also has political power. This dude is smart. He's educated. He's ambitious. He is at the center of the cultural, religious, political universe. And then 
the Samaritan woman at the well is the exact opposite. She is, first of all, a woman in that, con- in that culture and context would have meant radical differences in terms of the way they interacted with society. On top of that, she's a Samaritan, which is in many ways the sworn theological enemy of the Jews. She is a woman who has quite the backstory, which we will learn about. And so we've got this, this person who is at the center and this person who is at the margins, a man with a lot of power, a woman with basically none And we're going to see how Jesus engages both of them differently and yet the same, right? It's not as if what we see with Jesus and Nicodemus is that Jesus brings a bunch of truth but no grace, and then with the woman, he brings a bunch of grace but no truth, or the opposite, that Jesus embodies both in both conversations and yet does so really differently and really sensitively and wisely in each conversation. So that's what we're looking at kind of at the macro level. And so what I wanna do is recap a little bit of last week because we stopped mid-conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Okay, so John chapter three, we did verses one through about 13 last week. And here's the big idea. Nicodemus, the super powerful guy, comes to Jesus at night, right? Coming to see Jesus would have been putting much of his power and influence at risk, and so he does so at night, which tells you a little something about his commitment to Jesus, that it's, he's putting it at some risk, but not joining Jesus in the middle of the day, which would have put his position at great risk, right? So he's hedging his bets a little bit here. Goes to Jesus, says, Rabbi, It's clear to us that you are a teacher come from God because nobody can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus hears what I think many of us would hear as as affirmation or as like, hey, you're great and we're with you and we love you. Jesus looks into his soul, basically, and says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. To which Nicodemus goes, I don't know what you're talking about basically, right? Like, uh, why did you say that, right? So Jesus goes, first, you have to be born again in order to even see the kingdom of God. And then after Nicodemus kind of says, how does that work? How can an old man enter into his mother's womb? Which we talked about last week is basically Nicodemus taking the most ridiculous version of what Jesus said and then responding to that, right? So the word for born again can also mean born from above. Jesus intentionally uses this word that could mean either born again or born from above. And many of us, if we were being generous and thoughtful, we'd go, oh, okay, I see what Jesus is doing there, right? He's saying that there is a second kind of birth, a a, a kind of a divine or spiritual rebirth, a birth that comes from heaven that you have to experience in order to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't do that. He takes the most ridiculous version and responds to that, right? When I mentioned last week, that's basically what Twitter is, right? The most ridiculous, people only responding to the most ridiculous version of what they hear and then starting a fight, okay? It's really valuable time. (laughs) So Jesus goes, you must be born again. Uh, Nicodemus doesn't understand, tries to fight with him. And Jesus responds by saying, listen, the flesh is the flesh, the spirit's the spirit. There's no way to go from the flesh to the spirit. Again, Nicodemus has no idea what Jesus is talking about, 
right? So he's challenged him by saying, you have to be born again. I don't know what that means. Well, that's because you're trying to go from the flesh. You're trying to kind of uh, pull all the levers of power that you have accomplished, right? So Nicodemus has religious power. He's got political power. He's got spiritual power. He's got ambition. He's got intelligence. He's got education. All of these things that when, when, when we hit crunch time, that he's pulling on these levers of power to get him what he wants. Jesus says, none of those levers will work in order to become born again. There's nothing you can do. You can't earn it, discipline it, accomplish it, ambition it, educate it. You can't get there. Flesh is flesh, spirit's spirit, and there's no way to go from flesh to spirit. Unless, he says, the third thing, that the spirit does it. He says the spirit moves where it wants to move. The spirit does what it wants to do. The spirit transforms. He goes, so, and so it is with those who are born of the spirit, that the spirit has a will of its own, that it enlivens us and creates in us this new birth, right? So we talked about how this isn't the only place John kind of talks about this idea. In John 1, verses 11 to 13, he said this, he, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, hear this, they were born not of blood, meaning this wasn't an ethnic thing, this is no longer just a Jewish thing, nor of the will of the flesh, so that there's nothing natural within us that would draw us towards God. But get this one, nor of the will of man. This is not something that we decide to do. We cannot will this new birth into existence. And in fact, Jesus is saying here that it, the, the trigger was belief and that not even that belief is born out of the will of man. He says, but of God, that it comes from the will of God. It is the work of God in us. And John will say again, in fact, Jesus says in chapter six, verses 63 to 65, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Okay, so Jesus lays all this out for Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus comes thinking he's just gonna bless Jesus with his power, basically, and go, hey, Jesus, you know me, I'm Nicodemus. Hey, we're with you, we like you, you could be one of us. Jesus goes, yeah, um, in order to see the kingdom of God, you got to be born again. Nicodemus goes, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, yep, yeah, uh, flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. You can't flesh your way to the spirit. Nicodemus says, oh, okay, yeah, that makes no sense. Jesus goes, yeah, because see, the spirit does what the spirit wants to do. The spirit moves, and we can see the effect of the spirit, but we don't know where it's coming from. We don't know where it's going. And so it is with those born of the spirit. The spirit does it, not you. There's nothing you can do to get there. There's nothing about your life. There's nothing about your accomplishment. There's nothing about your will. There's nothing about your work ethic. There's nothing about you at all that can move you from flesh to spirit. To which Nicodemus replies in verse 9, how can these things be? In other words, Jesus, you've, you've painted this impossible picture. This impossible picture where I have to be born again, but there's nothing I can do to be born again. The Spirit's got to born me again. Uh, so what do I do? How, how, how does this work if I have no control over it? And Jesus responds. 
Are you not the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus responds to him. Nicodemus goes, okay, I don't understand. How is this possible? You've just painted this impossible picture. Jesus goes, first, let me challenge you, first of all, because you came in here with a lot of arrogance. You came in here with all your levers of power, kind of you know, two armloads of levers, and you walked in going, hey, Jesus, you want to be with us? You want to be on our team? And Jesus challenges him a little bit and goes, listen, you're supposed to be the teacher of Israel, and you don't get any of this? Let's just, let's just call that out for a second. And then Jesus uses this really obscure reference in verse 14. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus would have known right away this is Numbers chapter 21. And, it, and you do too, right? Obviously, Numbers 21. It's your favorite verse. Numbers 21 is this short, kind of random, kind of obscure reference that Jesus is making here that, that Nicodemus definitely would have known, but is maybe not obvious, okay? So um, in order to make you do something you've probably never done, turn to Numbers. I don't recommend uh, reading Numbers a lot unless you're uh, having trouble sleeping, but, because it's just, I mean, it's like it's a lot of numbers, right? Like that's the idea. So there are these kind of random stories uh, sprinkled throughout the book of Numbers, and this is one of them. So let's just read it together. Verse 4, from Mount Hor, they sent out by the, way, uh, by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So there's no food, but we loathe the food. Okay. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to, the Moses, said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, here's my favorite part of this story. The next verse. And the people of Israel set out and camped at Oboth. Here's why that's my favorite story. Because this crazy story is, is in the context of so many other crazy stories that it ends with, and then they moved on, right? Like, think about that. This, if this story happened to us, it would be the story we tell at every party, right? Like, there's this one time I was in the wilderness, and there's these fiery serpents, and right? This would be everything. But, but it's just another crazy story. Now, a couple things. One. Most commentators uh, don't know really what the fiery serpents thing means. Could mean that the snakes were red, right? And so that's why uh, the author calls them fiery. Could be that when they bit the people, it burned, and so that was the fiery. Uh, I think it's unlikely, but more interesting, if these were snakes on fire, okay? <laughs> 
So I'm, let's just go with that, uh, that this is snakes on fire, and, uh, and that just makes a, a crazy story a little more crazy, okay? So why does Jesus call out this random story from the book of Numbers? It's like six verses long. It's super random. Why? Because Jesus is telling Nicodemus, y'all are being bit by snakes on fire, but you don't know it. And your only hope is to look at the serpent on the pole, right? Which might sound just as crazy as all the rest of it, but for Nicodemus, he might be able to begin to put together what's happening. He might be able to begin to connect the dots. In fact, what we know is that at the end of Jesus' life, it was two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who arranged for Jesus' burial. So along the way, Nicodemus was keeping tabs on Jesus. This story doesn't end with any kind of decision on Nicodemus's part, but we know that at the end, Nicodemus was still around and still at least sympathetic to Jesus. Now, I would love to have been there for the moment. In fact, if anyone ever gives me a time-traveling DeLorean, uh, one of the places I would go back to is the moment that Nicodemus figured out what Jesus was talking about, right? Like there had to have been a ton of confusion in this moment, but then later on, just a few years later, when Nicodemus is looking at Jesus dying on a cross, that it would dawn on him that what Jesus said in their very first meeting was coming true. That Jesus, like the serpent in the wilderness, had become the solution, that the very consequence for sin in this case, the, the people of Israel's grumbling and complaining. Now, there's part, probably many of you who read this story and go, okay, does it seem like overkill that the people are complaining and grumbling in the wilderness and the, and the response of God is to send snakes on fire to bite and kill them? Now, it might seem like that's an overreaction to you, but if you have kids... It doesn't, because the complaining and grumbling is an ongoing problem that you start to go, yeah, snake's on fire, I get that. That makes sense to me at some level, right? So, so here's, here's what the story says, that there is a consequence for sin, these snakes on fire, and then that the solution that Jesus brings is not, or that God tells Moses, is not some totally other solution like, yeah, get the guns and you know, that, that's how you'll kill them. But he says, take one of them, or, or make a, a bronze version of one of them, put it on a pole so that the problem itself, when looked upon in this context, becomes the solution to the problem. It's almost like what Paul says in Romans Eight, for God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 2, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So track with me again. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus goes, you have to be born again, but you can't flesh your way there. The spirit has to do it in you. Nicodemus goes, well, okay, but how does, then how does that work? And he goes, remember the story of the snakes on fire in the wilderness? And Nicodemus goes, kinda. He goes, that's kind of what you gotta do. 
There will be a serpent on a pole that you got to look to, that, that death itself or the consequences of death itself becomes the path to life. And just at this moment of probably confusion on Nicodemus's part, Jesus explains further in what is probably the most recognizable verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus just explained his illustration, right? Gives the illustration of uh, snakes on fire and then, and then explains it by saying, for God so loved the world. And this, in this sense, so doesn't mean the extent to which he loved the world. It's not like God so loved the world, but it, it's, it's, read it as this is the way God loved the world. God loved it in this way. God loved it so. This is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So just the same way that God gave the, the snake to be looked upon when believed in, when trusted in by bringing your eyes to the snake on a pole, that that would bring salvation, God worked the same way in his love for the world. He demonstrated his love for the world in the same way in that he sent his son to die so that all those who believed might be saved. God created a path to salvation where none existed, right? So there, there, is a, there is a challenge, like an implicit question in this for us, if we are here and, and if you are here and you're not a Christian, in, in which case I would say like, so thankful that you're here, honestly impressed that you're here. I know that some of you here are not Christians. I, I just, I love that you're willing to engage at that level. But here's the question that Jesus poses to us. He says, this is the way God loved the world. Which for us, if we go, well, I don't believe in God, then I would ask, how, do, how does your God love you? How do you know your God loves you? Now, you may say, well, I'm an atheist, I'm not God. Great, okay, so it's just you. How do you love you? How do you know that, the, that you are loved in this world? What is the demonstration of love that you have, that you can bank on, that's more than just words, that's more than uh, emotion or expression, that, that's, that's tangible, that's something you can really depend on? Because in Christianity, we go, listen, I know God loves me because he died for me. It's not just this idea that God is love, but that God demonstrated that love for us in sending his son to die for us. So how do we know if our God loves us? The promise of the gospel is that if we just look at the Son, that we will be healed from what Jesus here calls perishing. Whatever that is, it's the opposite of eternal life, right? Jesus says, whosoever believes in him, or I don't know why it went King James there, but whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So whatever perishing is, it's the alternative to everlasting life. Now, I've heard some say, like, that's it? All I have to do is believe? That's all it takes? I can do whatever else I want, and all I gotta do is pick the right person to believe in, and I can experience eternal life? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So why are you fighting it? Like the, the argument that that's ridiculous makes, is, is ridiculous to me. 
the offer of eternal life for simple belief, and we go, well, that's not enough. I should pay more than that. Why? That's crazy. Why would we make the offer of salvation more difficult, more arduous than it is? When Jesus, on his behalf, goes, listen, I'll pay for all of it. Right, I've been out at restaurants, and I have a very large family, five kids and a wife, and, uh, and, and so I think uh, at times people look at us and feel pity, and I get it, I, I'll, I'll take it, uh, but, but we've been out, and people have paid for our meals, right, uh, with, without, uh, without us knowing, the, the waiter comes over and is like, hey, someone took pity on you, and, and uh, that you look poor and, 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 and frazzled, so they paid for you, and, and there is something in me that goes, no, 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 I mean, that's nice of you, but, uh, but no, I can, I can handle it, or at least, at least let me cover the tip, at least let me do my part, right? My wife's already out the door, uh, you know, in the car, but, but I'm like, no, I, you gotta, I, I, gotta, I gotta do something. What is that in us? What is that in us that, that whether it's pizza or salvation, that we wanna have a part to play? I mean, it's pride. Right, it's pride. You can't do that for me. I can do it. I, I can take care of myself. I can do it myself. I see it in my kids already. My two-year-old will all the time. I'm like, no, I, I can do it. He, he doesn't say that because he can't talk, but he'd be like, mine, right? Like me. And, and he, this is what he does all the time. He won't let me put a shoe on. Or, and he's terrible at his putting his shoes on. Not only does he usually get them backwards, but then he gets them halfway on and then he cries. It's like, well, buddy, I offered. Dummy. Right, like, but there's something in us from a very early age that goes, that's it? No, I can do it. I can have a part. I want to have a part. I want to get some credit. Jesus goes, no, you can't. You got nothing. He goes on, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And, and just right at the moment where we go, oh great, Jesus didn't come to condemn. He continues, unfortunately, saying, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Now, this word condemned uh, can be, uh, can just kind of have a lot of baggage with it, because maybe some of you have experienced real condemnation in church where people have condemned you for this or that or whatever. I mean, the root of this idea is just simply like to be condemned is to be judged. Is that a better word? Probably not. Um, it's, it's just to draw distinctions or to separate. Basically, Jesus is saying, listen, um, if you don't want to be with Jesus, if you don't want to be with me, that's fine, but what will happen is uh, you won't be with me. Like there will, be, there will be a separation, which is always what makes me crazy when people complain that you have to believe in Jesus in order to go to heaven, right? Like that makes no sense. Basically, God's going, hey, if you want to be with me, be with me, and we go, I don't want to be with you, but then I want to be with you. Well, that makes no sense at all. The invitation to be in heaven is an invitation to be in the presence of God. If for your entire life you say, I don't want to be in the presence of God, why then later will you? That makes no sense. 
The offer is here to believe in Jesus and to participate in the life he offers. Or believe whatever else you want, but then you will be participating in the life that that thing or person offers. Good luck. This is the choice before us. So of course there's condemnation at the end in the sense that there is judgment at the end in the sense that there is an end to the path you walk. And Jesus goes, I'm going this way. My path goes this way. If you spend your whole life going that way, you won't end up over there. Simple enough? So we can, we can kind of tease out some of the churchy baggage language here and, and simplify it so that we hear Jesus simply go, listen, if you orient your life around work, it goes that direction. If you orient your life around some relationship, it goes that direction. If you orient your life around some ideology or other faith or philosophy, it goes that direction. I'm going that direction. So if you go that way, don't expect to end up where I am. And that shouldn't be hard for us to understand. See, most of us don't fully orient our lives around work or a person or another ideology. For most of us, we orient our lives around ourselves, which is really the worst option of them all. Right? So I was having a conversation recently with a friend of mine who is recently an atheist, and he, he said, uh, don't you think it's arrogant to be a Christian? Don't you think it's arrogant to claim some exclusive vision of, of what is true? And I laughed. I literally laughed, which I shouldn't have because that's not nice. But I laughed because I said, there, there is no more arrogant position to be or to hold than an atheist, because at least as a Christian, though I say, yes, Christianity makes exclusive truth claims, I am personally submitting to several thousand-year-old document, the, the history and tradition of millions and millions of people across time and space. I am submitting myself to a God of the universe who I'm saying, you listen, he's sovereign, I'm not. He's divine, I'm not. He's God, I'm not. He's right, I'm wrong when I disagree with him. You're saying that you as a 30-ish year old guy who's really just lived in one town and does have a bachelor's degree from ASU, um, can, can conceive of uh, reality and morality and truth in such a way that you would orient your entire life simply around that. Who's more arrogant here? It takes a good deal of arrogance to be an atheist, to take responsibility for those kinds of existential decisions, to answer those questions for yourself rather than to be submitted to some other person or being or tradition. Now, Jesus says, here is the final judgment. Verse 19, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. 
Jesus says that um, in the presence of the light, and we know now from three chapters of John that Jesus is the light of the world, that his light has come into the world to, to reflect the truth about the world. He says this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil and they want to hide. They want to continue to do what they want to do in the darkness. Some years ago, in fact, uh, when I was a junior in high school, I was doing kind of a traveling missions trip here in the United States and we were in St. Louis. And we walked into a building in St. Louis. It was an old YMCA built early 20th century. And it was gigantic, probably 100,000 square feet, four levels, three up, one basement, And it was the most incredible space I'd ever seen, but it had not been kept up for probably 100 years is what it felt like. And we were given the task, me and a couple of my buddies, um, I remember the woman looked at us and said, you guys look like strong, brave guys, which should have been a tip, right? She's buttering us up here. She goes, here, take these uh, flashlights and go down into the basement and just kind of clean things up that you see in the basement. And so uh, being uh, honestly terrified but needing to act brave, we walked down to the basement. And we needed flashlights because it was pitch dark. There had not been light or humanity in the basement since the mid-1700s, I believe. And, uh, and so we're walking around thinking, where do you even begin in this space? And we opened a door because... I don't know, we were in a horror movie, and uh, we opened a door from the main hallway and shone our flashlights in, and you know when you're seeing something but your brain can't quite make sense of what you're seeing, and there's just this pause for what seems like an hour or so while you're kind of going, what is happening, what am I seeing? And then it clicked, and I realized that the floor was moving because it was covered in cockroaches. And when I say covered in cockroaches, I mean they were three deep piggybacking, you know, around uh, the floor. It was covered in cockroaches, and we shone the light, and they all scattered away from the light into the corners of the room. And so we closed the door and moved on to the next, only to find more cockroaches everywhere we went. Now, I told this story in the morning, and I had multiple people come to me and go, what was the end of the story? The end of the story is we left and cleaned nothing because I think I just told you why, right? Like it was awful. And so uh, these cockroaches were living in the basement because there had been canned foods in there since medieval times that had then bloated and and, and exploded and, and was leaking and they were feasting on the spilled remains of botulism exploded canned food. You are that cockroach. (laughs) That's what Jesus says. I mean, that's not me. That's not me. That's Jesus saying that when we have light shined on us, we prefer the darkness that we kind of grow accustomed to the life that we build for ourselves in the darkness where we can eat garbage but convince ourselves it's healthy. 
when we can hide and tell ourselves and those around us that the darkness is preferable because it enables us to do whatever we want. See, that's the thing about the darkness. In the dark, you can do whatever you want to do. And so we prefer the darkness. We prefer to hide in the dark being the masters of our own destiny. See, we begin to see why God does this salvation thing the way he does it. God saves us this way by making it entirely on him because the core of sin is selfness. It's not a word, but it's a word tonight, selfness. That's the core of all sin, is the desire to be the master of our own universe, the desire to be in control, to be God. This was Adam and Eve in the garden. It began with them. The temptation was that they wanted to be like God rather to be in intimate relationship with him. Nicodemus here in this story wanted to pull all of his levers to get his way to make Jesus be like him rather than to submit to Jesus. Some people laud Nicodemus for his bravery to come to Jesus at all, but let's be honest, he only came to Jesus at night when he didn't have to risk much. He was willing to engage Jesus, but only insofar as he didn't give up any of his levers of power. The people of Israel grumbled because they believed that they knew best and God was wrong. Now, they're grumbling about food and grumbling about all this, but let's keep in mind that what they didn't say about Egypt was that they were slaves. And so what they're actually saying is, God, we'd rather be slaves than be out here with no food and we hate the food. So this is about them knowing what's best, and I'll be honest with you. I want to explain away the weird story about the snakes on fire because it's embarrassing and I think I probably know best about what they deserved. And so when I read that story in Numbers 21 this week and last week when I'm preparing this message, my first thought is like, okay, but how can I kind of massage this? Because it does seem like God's overreacting here a little bit, sending snakes on fire because they're complaining. But again, that's just me going like, yeah, but that, what that means is I know best. Besides the fact this is not the first time that they have complained. I mean, literally like minutes after being freed from Pharaoh, they hit the Red Sea and turn on Moses and go, you've brought us here just to die at the hands of Pharaoh. I mean, literally they've been not slaves for 15 minutes and they're already complaining. And so over and over and over, they complain and they complain and they complain. Here's what's great. That story about the, the, uh, the bronze serpent that they raised up and put on a pole and everybody looked at and was saved, they later turned that into an idol that they worshiped because of course they did. Because that's what they do over and over and over. Instead of worshiping God, they make a thing that they feel like they could control because it's the product of their own hands because at the core of sin is selfness. Augustine called this famously incurvitus and C in the Latin, which means the soul turned in on itself. Now, what's hard for us today is that this idea is culture's highest ideal. 
that our own autonomy and unfettered self-expression are the apex of human experience. And anyone, anything, any system, any institution that would put limits on your own self-expression are the evil ones. They're the bad guys. Because if the highest end of a human is self-expression, then anything that hinders that is hindering you as a person and your pursuit of your own ends. Jesus calls that the path to perishing. So what's the answer? Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Here's what we shouldn't expect in this passage is resolution. Jesus doesn't resolve this for us. This is not a three-point sermon with a clear conclusion. He kind of leaves us in the tension of the same idea he's been building this whole time. right? Dale Bruner, who's a, kind of a John scholar, translates this last verse this way, saying, he says, so that it may be made perfectly clear that this individual's way of life is a work of God. That literally this is that even his deeds were worked in God. Even the deed of coming into the light is the result of the work of God in you. So if you come to the light, that's because God is working faith in you, that God is working the gospel truth into your soul. Because here's the reality, you will not come into the light, you will not expose your sin, you will not expose who you are, unless you believe that on the other side of that light is life. That's the only way. Because if there is sin in the darkness now, you are not bearing all the consequences of it and bringing that sin into the light gives you the chance it makes you risk bearing far more consequences for that sin than you have been previously. So the only way a person will walk into the light is if God is working in him. It has to be done in God or it won't be done at all. So if we walk into the light, confessing sin and giving up the self, we can know that God is working in us. We are naturally cockroaches, feasting on spoiled food and convincing ourselves in the dark that it's healthy and that the darkness is better because it allows us to be our true selves, uninhibited by any external light. But he but we know better, don't we? Don't we, isn't there something in us that is suggesting, hinting, at least whispering, this isn't right, this isn't good, this isn't healthy. Is this all there is? Is this actually the highest end? Is this actually what I was made for? I think that there's something in us that that suggests that there's more. Jesus is the light that shines truth on our lives. But unless that truth is made real and good in our hearts, we will always run from it. So God has to do it. And he does. This is the extravagant grace of God, the gratuitous grace of God. Not only does he provide a path to salvation, 
And not only does he allow our salvation to be accomplished by simple faith, but he provides the very faith that will save us. It's because of this that we can confidently walk towards the light. We know that the one who shines the light into the darkest recesses of our hearts has already loved us to his death. We know what he will do when he sees our sin because he has already done it. So come into the light and be saved by it. Okay, two questions. One, it says, okay, so all we have to do is believe for salvation, but God also says that our belief is not our own. How much is choice and how much is spirit? I love this question because it is such a Western question that Jesus refuses to answer for us. We want percentages. We want a, a, a process. We, okay, is it me first, then Jesus? Is it Jesus first, then me? Is it 50-50? Are we partners? What's the, is this an LLC? Is it what, like, how does this work together? And Jesus goes, um, you have to believe, and you can't believe without me. Next question. That, that, that the tension itself is what we're supposed to enter into. That the call to salvation is a call to belief, and yet Jesus brings us to the end of ourselves and says, you, but you can't conjure belief. You can't just wake up one morning and decide to believe something. Belief comes from within us. Belief is conviction, and conviction is not primarily a mental exercise. It's existential. It comes from here, wherever here is. I keep doing this. It's here somewhere. God gives us that and then says, and, and believe, and you can't believe, so believe, but you won't believe, so believe, but you can't unless I give you belief, now believe. Your job is to believe. God's job is to give you belief. How that works exactly, that's what heaven's for. We'll be there a long time. <laughs> Question two. What would you say to a believer who was reminded of God's accomplishment on the cross, the sureness of the salvation accomplished, but they slip often into works-based thinking? thinking they're doing well or not well, and then fearing their relationship with the Lord is at risk. This is, this is the classic temptation of the Christian life, okay? Because here's, here's, what, uh, here's what's not true, okay? What's not true is that whether you are doing a good job obeying God or disobeying God or how that part of your life is working um, matters about God's love for you. That is, that's not true, right? There is nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. God loves you the most because he's already died for you. It's done. Here's the other side of the coin of what, of coin, of what of, or the other side of the corn. It's what we say uh, in the old country. Um, <laughs> here's something that's also not true. That whether or not you obey God, it, it doesn't matter at all. It has no, it, it just don't worry about it. That's not what matters. Jesus died, so, so your sin or your obedience doesn't matter. That's not true either. It absolutely matters because the path of following Jesus is the path of life. And so a path of disobedience and sin is a path that leads to death, an experience of death. So here's what we know. 
our ultimate relationship with God is not affected by our behavior that is solved in Christ. And yet, the decisions that we make matter on a daily basis because when we sin, it hurts people. When we sin, it hurts ourselves. It, it, it breaks God's world when we sin. So this doesn't matter ultimately, and it matters, okay? So we live in that tension. We, 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 we kind of go like this all the time. Here's what I would say to answer the question. If you feel yourself slipping into this works-based kind of criteria for your relation, ultimate relationship with God, I would remind you to come to church every week because every week you will be faced with the reality that Christ died for you on the cross and so that there is nothing else you can do. We partake of communion every single week, and we're going to do it just in a moment, to be reminded every single week Everything that had to be done was done. Everything required to put you in right relationship with Christ and with God is done. Jesus accomplished it all on the cross. It's finished. So the, the simple answer is look at the cross because what you're saying is in effect, the cross was great, but it wasn't enough to make God love me still. I also have to perform for him. And that's wrong. Christ performed everything on the cross. God's love for you has already been demonstrated. You don't have to perform to make God love you. Amen? That's good news because you won't perform enough if that's what it was up to. All right? Thanks for listening. For more information and podcast episodes, head to iconchurch.org.